You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Today, I'm speaking with Marie Cochran on January 15, 2021 what would have been Martin Luther King Jr.'s 92nd birthday. Marie is a visual artist, writer, and activist. She is the founding curator of the Appalachian Artist Project, which celebrates the intersections of cultures in Appalachia and highlights the unique perspective of people of African descent in the region. From February 25th through March 25th, 2021, Piedmont College will host her exhibit, Notes from an Appalachian Daughter in the Era of COVID-19. And on March 4th, 2021, the Lillian E. Smith Center will host its biannual symposium on arts and social justice. Marie will be one of the presenters at that symposium, along with Sho Baraka, Carrie Lee Merritt, and Chuck Brown. Today, we will discuss King, Lillian Smith, and Marie's ongoing work. Thank you for joining me today, Marie. I am so glad to be here with you, Matt. I'm glad that you're here, too. We're actually up here at the center, and we were looking around a minute ago, and all the things that connect King with Lillian Smith. It's just amazing that the story is really, to my knowledge, not told much about her impact with King and then King's impact on her and just this relationship. And it's interesting, you know, that you say, you know, it's important to note that we're here in the common room on the grounds of the Lillian Smith Center. And as I walk these grounds, I'm always thinking about the fact that King might have been here. Um, that hasn't been explored or you know, um, researched to um, verify in any way, but the spirit of social justice um, is here in Northeast Georgia, which is where I'm from. Yeah, I mean, you're from Tacoa, which is like 20 miles down the road, basically. Right. I mean, the spirit that you're talking about, remember that Lillian Smith had interracial gatherings here. She had Paul Roberson's wife here. I always forget her first name. And then she had Mary Church Terrell up here for these interracial dinners with white women and black women getting together. And would you just, because, you know, I need you to help me remember, and those, that was prior to what is considered the modern civil rights era. Those dates would be around... The 40s, perhaps? So that, that dinner that I remember, I think is 45. And I think she started them in the late 30s. Rose Gladney has information about that. And um, how am I to be heard? There's discussions about that. But she was having those. And I think a lot of that stems from some of the camping culture. Uh, that's a whole other discussion for another period. But I think a lot of that kind of deals with that. But we are here. And there is so much civil rights history here, social justice history here within these walls in various forms from Laurel Falls camp to what she did after the camp. You know, looking at her materials down to the Harvard, UGA and elsewhere, she has addresses, three or four addresses for King. Supposedly the story goes that King's number was written on the side of the, beside the telephone. When he was arrested in, I believe either 1960 or 1961, I forget the year, 1960, and the Kennedys got him out of jail, he was arrested because he was breaking probation. That probation stemmed from the spring when him and Coretta took Smith out to dinner from how Coretta tells it. And then they were driving her back to Emory Hospital for cancer treatment. 
And Smith was riding in the front seat, King was driving, and then a police officer pulled him over. They did not realize they paid the ticket the next day, um, King and his father, and they did not realize he was on probation, but he was on probation because of that. That's an, an amazing story. And, you know, I consider myself a student of the civil rights era and, you know, then under that umbrella of African-American history, even as an artist, you know, history is right there alongside my interest in the studio. That's why I call myself an artist slash activist. But to hear those stories that haven't been told, and as you said, we started, you know, the conversation to know that there were these things that were happening just 20 minutes from where I grew up. You know, the stereotype is and the reduction is that the civil rights movement happened in Birmingham, Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama, Selma. Very much about it is not even talked about as related to Atlanta, so it sure isn't talked about in terms of North Georgia. And that's the thing that makes me so excited to be able to connect with this institution um, because I want to share those stories with my students and with my community because, you know, we've had this conversation often. All these things that happen on these college campuses, I want to take outside of simply the academic world where we write essays and publish um, and teach and give grades and assignments, but have it be an organic discussion about communities and grassroots organizing. And there was something you said there that we don't tell these stories of other places. And I would be very remiss if I didn't say that Ernest Gaines' birthday is today as well. He would have been 88 years old today. Um, Louisiana author, most wide known for, of course, um, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman and Lesson Before Dying. And if you look at his work, he talks about King throughout his work. Um, there's images of King throughout different novels. But if you look at his work, he's talking about the way the civil rights movement, especially in Pittman, affected those who were not in the urban centers, who weren't in Baton Rouge, who weren't in Selma, who weren't elsewhere. They were rural Louisiana citizens, basically, rural Louisiana individuals, black individuals. And their movement through that period, and other periods as well, but that's what he focused on, is one of those stories. Mm-hmm. The stories that we don't see that were streamed through the news. You know, And I just want to interject real quickly that I do believe, you know, in my own imagination, that there was probably hearsay about Lillian Smith beyond Rabin County, where black communities may, be, may have been aware of her, but because, again, they didn't write essays, they didn't publish their thoughts, we don't necessarily have access to anything that could be seen as a journal, but there might have been hearsay that would prompt them to think about the fact that there was support for their cause. I like to think that. Well, even in the community, she did things for the children in the community. She had Christmas parties up here. One story from a woman told me that when they were integrating the schools, she told them to come up here and basically gave them school materials. And she basically said, if anybody gives you problems, tell them to come talk to me. You know, and one woman, of course, they were trying to deny her the right to vote by giving her a history test or literacy test. And Lil was like, I'm not having any of that. Mm -hmm. So, in the community, she was doing things. Her and her brother and her sisters. I mean, Frank, Esther, and Nana Lori, too. All of them were doing things here. And there isn't a large black population here, as you know. I think 100 to 200 people 
um, maybe even its height to Koa more, of course. But and and that's what I mean, you know. Especially, and we could, we're going to talk about this. I know more about um, you know my work with the Appalachian Artist Project. You know, Black communities in Appalachia. You know, little is not has not been documented, but this I do know from lived experience. But Black communities in Appalachia, as small as they might be, would share information from community to community, irrespective of the county uh, boundaries, because they had to. Right. Because, you know, as we talked about, you know, even the camp and some of the activities that were going on while Lillian Smith was living beyond her publishing career uh, as a writer, um, they had to keep those things secret. Yeah. To be successful because the prevailing um, thought and actions were to prevent them from doing this work. Um, so I want to get back to talking about the fact that this, what's the full name of the center? It's called Center for Creative Arts. Um, and I like the fact that, you know, even thinking about that, you know, beyond what is, I'm excited, you know, thinking about, you know, the writers and the artists that have come through um, and been on these grounds and the activities in present day. Um, you know, that's very um, inspiring, especially during these turbulent times for yeah, me. I mean, the Lillian Smith Center exists to continue the work of Lillian Smith and the social justice work that she did. Of course, the artists and residents who come up here typically have that focus of social justice activism and social justice work. And King and Smith, you know, they began corresponding, you know, about 1956. She actually was scheduled to give a speech at the one year anniversary of the Montgomery bus boycott, but she was ill with her cancer, of course, and she didn't, so somebody read it for her. And that speech is really powerful. She talks about the freedoms that whites are losing and other things, and it's, it's a very powerful speech, but she delivered a speech at the one year anniversary and King and her, like I said, started talking in 56. She wrote to King. And Smith begins her first letter to King telling him, I have, with a profound sense of fellowship and admiration, been watching your work in Montgomery. I cannot begin to tell you how effective it seems to me. This letter sparked a relationship that lasted till Smith's death. I mean, on her death, King wrote to Smith's family. This is the telegram that he wrote her. She was one of the brightest stars in the human firmament. Probably no Southerners seared the conscience of white Southerners on the question of racial injustice than Lillian Smith. You know, I've heard about kind of your own journey um, tracing the civil rights movement, and I've heard you talk about attending the anniversary event at Tougaloo College that stemmed from the High Museum show that you did in 1984, and the event at Tougaloo in Mississippi was commemorating 1964's Freedom Summer, where activists worked to register as many black voters as they could uh, in the state while facing racist threats and violence from the Klan and state and local law enforcement as well as citizens. You've talked about meeting individuals such as John Lewis and others. As well, you've mentioned that you heard them speaking about what they wish they did differently. So can you talk about the journey that kind of led you to Tougaloo and that commemoration, but also what they wish they did differently? Yes, um, to tie all these ideas together. Um, first of all, um, when I was a young child in Tacoa, Georgia, I was one of the first children coming through kindergarten um, to desegregate the schools there. 
1968, years after Brown versus Board of Education. So fast forward to being, you know, uh, a first generation college student who went to the University of Georgia for my undergrad and then went on to get my MFA from the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. I had a show, my first major show at the High Museum of Art. I was in a group exhibition. It's called Equal Rights and Justice. And that show actually went on to the Smithsonian. So that's a long way from Tacoa to <laughs> the Smithsonian. Um, but in that process, you know, I'd always been interested in black history, in the civil rights movement, you know, starting when I was in middle school. Um, but I went on a personal pilgrimage to see these places. And, you know, I went to um, the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis where King was assassinated. I went to Birmingham where the children had been sprayed with fire hoses and, you know, um, brutalized by police officers. Um, I've been to the Highlander Center in Tennessee where King and Rosa Parks trained. But one of those most important places and events was I was able to go to that reunion at Tougaloo College, a historically black college where, you know, um, it was almost like a, a reunion, class reunion. I felt like uh, I was, you know, uh, sort of busting in on somebody's um, reunion, uh, but I was one of many activists and artists and educators who heard about this event. My first time in Mississippi, and as soon as I walked into the main room where people were gathered, I looked over and I felt like I was having a fever dream. <laughs> there was Julian Bond, there was Bernice Reagan of uh, Sweet Honey in the Rock, um, there was my idol, the late uh, Congressman John Lewis. Um, there was the family members of Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner. All of these people. And I could talk for hours about what happened over the uh, course of three days um, with folks, you know, sitting down and having dinner together, having these different events, these sing-alongs, these presentations. But at the very end, we gathered together because young activists demanded to have the conversation about what do we do now. And, and this um, is 1984. This is 1984. So 20 years after. Um, and so someone from Albany and I'll have to go back and get the name of the person, but it's a part of the Albany movement here in Georgia, stood up as a black man, and he said, this is what should have been done. All of these different young people were coming from all of, around the country. Um, many of them were white college students. And we would sit together in these integrated circles, you know, in people's homes, uh, in their kitchens, you know, with Fannie Lou Hamer, et cetera, et cetera. But those young people specifically, and this is what he said, those white young people should have been talking to poor white people. 
because our cause is a common cause. And I'm, this is not a quote, I'm just paraphrasing. Because he made it clear that people talk about the black freedom struggle, but it is called the civil rights movement. I mean, the March on Washington was the March on Washington for... Jobs and equality. Right. Thank you. I was trying to remember the last one. Right. And then King started the Poor People's Campaign. Right. And that's what... That, I think that's what King and Smith knew. And others knew, too, that in order to actually move forward, you have to get at the structural issues, which King talks about in The Testament of Hope. Smith talks about with poor whites and coalitions between... Not just poor whites, but, but whites and blacks, of course. But she talks about the ways that wealthy individuals separate them. You know, Carrie Lee Merritt talks about it in the antebellum period. But when you were talking, something stuck out to me. Because you mentioned Birmingham. You mentioned going on, the, on this journey. And I remember going to Montgomery. And I, at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And the plaque outside of Dexter Avenue. Like, there's a plaque commemorating King. Okay. It's right down the street from the state capitol there in Montgomery. I'll look right across the street, walk right across the street, and there's a huge juxtaposition. There's a, a monument put up by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and it's basically just a, a stone. And it says, this is the path that Jefferson Davis took on his inaugural march, or his inaugural you know, parade to the Capitol as a president of the Confederacy. So it's this town of juxtapositions. You have the White House of the Confederacy, and now you have the Equal Justice Initiatives Memorial to Lynching, or Memorial to the Victims of Lynching. You have this juxtaposition. And I'm thinking about that. And I'm thinking about the ways that the UDC, which of course, women's organization, more wealthy, right? Is making monuments to construct these things. And I keep thinking back too of, to Connor Town O'Neill's, who was one of the co-producers of White Lies and who Lillian Smith informed, has informed his work, his new book, Down Along With That Devil's Bones, which deals with Nathan Bedford Forrest monuments looking at a few, uh, four of them, I think, one in Selma, a few in Tennessee. But the ways, of course, that the UDC and other groups sowed this division, too, by creating this false narrative. So penetrating that narrative, too, which Smith tries to do, but also talking to individuals. Because, like I said, both King and Smith innately understood to move forward a coalition of groups would need to work together, specifically economically disadvantaged, or as they say, poor white in black communities. And King wrote this in A Testament of Hope, which was published posthumously in Playboy. Just had to throw that in there. But <laughs> he says this about school integration. He says, white schools are often just about as bad as black schools. And integrated schools sometimes tend to merge the problems of the two without solving either of them. And elsewhere, I think O'Neill and others say too, that the individuals who bore the brunt of integration, at least white individuals, were poor whites. Right. With, with school integration and things like that. And so it's something to think about. Um, however, as has been the case throughout history, the powerful severed such ties. In the Testament of Hope, there's another quote that he actually he says in there. King writes about America's history, and he's writing about the Declaration of Independence specifically. He says, there were slaves when the Declaration of Independence was written. There were still slaves when it was adopted. And to this day, black Americans have not life, liberty, nor the privilege of pursuing happiness. This is the key. And millions of poor white Americans are in economic bondage is scarcely less oppressive. Americans who genuinely treasure our national ideals, who know they are still elusive dreams for all too many, should welcome the stirring of Negro demands. 
That's a lot to think about. Let me let me sort of distill some of what you've just said um, in a way that people can <laughs> can absorb it. Um, my hometown, Tacoa, Georgia. Tacoa is a Cherokee word. In Stevens County, named after Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy. So there you have this conflict just in and of itself. Mm-hmm. When I actually did research before I did my artwork for the show Equal Rights and Justice, it was about desegregation. It was the one piece in the show concentrating on uh, desegregation. And I use that term sometimes instead of integration to make it clear what was happening. And when I looked at the newspapers out of curiosity for my hometown, it did not use, the reporter did not use either the word integration or desegregation. They used the term school consolidation. And just to make clear my point, the county was so poor that they could not afford to keep two schools running parallel with one another. So when many years, like I said, when I reflected after my exhibition came down and it actually is uh, documented in a series for eighth graders now um, from Georgia Public Broadcasting. Um, But anyhow, um, they um, realized that they wanted to wait those 12 years to let a whole group of students come through. I did the math. They wanted to have that happen before they relented. And that's such a tragedy in and of itself. You know, and when you think about it, um, it was resistance to change, but it was also diminishing the educational opportunities of everyone. Because here's the other thing that's so weird about this complicated story. Um, Given the fact that the bright, young black children, young people, could not go to the University of Georgia. And by the way, the 60th anniversary of the desegregation of my alma mater just happened last week, you know, within my lifetime. You know, I was born in 62. And we that, talked. We talked right, with those, those young people. Young people were able to go like L.J. Harrison, the first black mayor of Tacoa in the 1980s, to Morehouse. So the smart young black people from a rural Northeast Georgia community went to better schools. It's really a complicated story. Well, there's one thing you said there that sticks out too. And it's still something I want to look into more, especially being in this region, is that Tacoa is a Cherokee name. Yeah. A Cherokee word. Yes, it is. And then Stevens, which I didn't know that. I didn't even think about that. But there's this intersection that we need to look at. And historians have looked at it. I did my dissertation partly on on it, looking at rhetoric. But this intersection of Native American, African American activism, especially in the antebellum period, and white activism, all mixed together there are these coalitions that were formed. And one of the big things, of course, we got to remember too, that the first person to die in the Boston Massacre was Christmas Addicts. Indigenous the, and right. African-American. Right? One of the books that uh, really formed me 
in this work that I've been doing for 10 years, because the um, Piedmont show will celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Afrolatchian Artist Project. We're throwing all these anniversaries at you, is when I got a chance to hear a presentation by Jeff Biggers, and he wrote an important book that will encapsulate what we're saying as relates to civil rights and Appalachia. It's called The United States of Appalachia, Jeff Biggers. And I've gotten a chance to meet him. Um, he's a wonderful supporter of my work um, through my friend Anna Ferriello uh, when I was teaching at Western Carolina University in Western North Carolina. And so the thing is, he writes that story in that book. He talks about the Highlander Center being in Appalachia. He talks about the incredible things that happened in West Virginia. Um, so when we try to characterize rural people, white Appalachians in a particular way, there's a lot, there's a richer story than the um, strategically crafted stereotype that supports a particular view um, as part of our current, you know, which turmoil. Gets us, which gets us into those larger discussions of how, to, how the narratives are crafted, which is something we cannot talk about right now. Right. But, but, here, but here's the thing that, that I will definitely want to shift back to, because I know one of the things that we were talking about earlier was about art and um, about the power of art. And I was really happy to have been a part of a team of artists to work on the Black Lives Matter street mural in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, that's my most recent project um, where I, I just can't even say what that experience was. I'm, I'm going to write an essay about it. Uh, it's going to have to give me more reflection time. But I was one of three lead artists that was selected, and we each did each of the words, Black Lives Matter. So I worked on matter. And then we were able to hire young artists to actually, you know, create, I mean, we, we did the design, but they actually um, assisted with the paint team. And there were close to 20 artists altogether who were involved in this process. But you were mentioning earlier, you know, these um, contrasts and contradictions, mm -hmm. but the placement was very thoughtful with this particular street mural because it encircled the Vance Monument. The Zebulon Baird um, Vance Monument. Right. Um, and he was a North Carolina governor who was closely aligned with white supremacist activity and the, uh, the Lost Cause he was movement. The, he was part of the Klan, right? Yes, he was. So it was almost like a consecration of that ground to have this predominantly African-American, actually so. almost all African-American, uh, except for two of the artists out of the 20, um, who were working together to create this um, street mural. And it will remain up until um, next summer. But also, as it encircles the, the street that drives you around the Mance Monument, 
the word matter, which is what I you know, created, faces the Asheville Art Museum. So these things then can reverberate um, as sites, you're talking about you know, Confederate monuments, um, so it's a, a way of not, of, of just bringing in this contrast of ideas mm -hmm. um, and bringing to bear for some people who might have just seen it as a way to mark your way to downtown Asheville, that the monument was not just an obelisk like the Washington Monument, because that's what it looks like. It is huge. It's huge. You can see it for miles and miles. It is like a landmark, but that that, that was meant to be something that was for all eternity to commemorate the Confederacy. You know, I was talking to a young person the other day who talked about the power of images, and they had no idea that the stars and bars had been on the state flag, I mean, the yeah, the state flag for Georgia, because it's now been changed. Um, it was changed after the Civil Rights Movement. It was not the flag forever. And, you know, there was a governor, Roy Barnes, who actually, you know, was responding to calls to change the flag, primarily because of the Olympic Games. But now we see a new Georgia. Um, so the way that these images sort of help us to march, mark the changes in society and um, the prevailing thoughts, hopes, and dreams of people is just, you know, I feel so happy to be a part of that tradition. Well, talking about that state flag, I mean, I'm from Louisiana. But there's a band called Squad 5-0, a punk band, who actually had a song in the late 90s or maybe mid-90s called Our State Flag Sucks. <laughs> so, but you were talking to about the monuments, and I'm thinking of Tacoa, your hometown, and I, I still don't know as much, but you told me some things. And I remember one of the first times I drove in there when I was going downtown to go to a bookstore and some other places, I made sure to go to the, I mean, the government buildings like right there, the courthouse right there. It's a UDC monument there. Right, and then of course the Ritz. Can you talk about the Ritz, which is a little ways down, which y'all just actually did stuff with? Okay, um, another on. another wonderful uh, uh, anniversary and another accomplishment. Well, um, you know, I grew up in Tacoa. I went away to college. You know, I lived in Chicago. I lived in New Jersey and Maryland and North Carolina. And um, in the last couple of years uh, with my work, you know, as an independent scholar before I got my fellowship, um, I currently have that's um, with the Center for Documentary Studies, I came back to my hometown and looked around and saw a, a community that was struggling economically. But I also started to look at the historic physical black community um, and it, it was appalling. It was so sad because, you know, you could see the fact that, again, many of us that had gotten college degrees, you know, the brain drain that happens in rural communities, but, you know, it, it's accentuated by black communities because then there are no opportunities for us if we wanted to come back. But I came back just to be able to be in residence. And I looked around and I got on the board of the Ritz Theater. 
and realized in conversation with Mr. Harrison, again, first black mayor, that um, you know he had been uh, a teenage worker there. Uh, he had helped, actually he at one point was trained and then became the projectionist um, and worked um, selling you know concessions and whatnot in the balcony, which was segregated. So once the Ritz had gotten funding to be renovated, they did not acknowledge that history. Um, and again, I, I must stress the fact that a lot of the things that happen, I feel, in small communities is a sense of shame and embarrassment because they don't know what to do with this complicated history. But what I often tell, especially young people and my students, is that it's a story of resilience. It's a story of resilience on the, on the part of people who fought to make the change. Um, that's the most important thing. So I lobbied and gained support through another organization that historically was a black organization, civil rights organization called Tacoa Improvement Association. And I was the president for a year and took it, you know, as our, one of our uh, missions to get a plaque, um, a bronze plaque on the exterior of the building to acknowledge the fact that the balcony was once segregated. And I can't remember the wording, um, but it's very clear, it's very um, straightforward. And at the very end, it says, we are stronger together than when we're separate. Um, but it took a while for me to get community support to have that put in place because of that sense of embarrassment and that sense of what do we do with this story. So I had to you know, have the support of Mr. Harrison and others so that people could re really understand what the purpose of that plaque was. And it was to let us know how far we've come. Yeah. Because it's interesting that when I grew up, because that was my neighborhood growing up until I was about 10, when we, after that we moved out to the county, is that it's one of the main um, roadways. It was called Broad Street. Mm -hmm. And the Ritz Theater is now at the corner of Martin Luther King yeah. Way. And I believe, if I'm correct, that may um, be broad. Tougaloo Street. It is Tougaloo, you're right. Right, Tougaloo Street. Right, and and the, and it's on the just on the other side, literally, of the overpass for the railroad tracks, mm -hmm. and on the other side is the historic black community. So, you know, even if, you know, someone is unaware of these stories, it at least makes people, if they look up and see these juxtapositions that you said, um, we'll begin to ask questions about, well, oh, this is street is called Martin Luther King Way. And most people know whatever community you're in, it's Martin Luther King something, that's a black community. Um, and then you read the uh, plaque and then literally you can walk up into the balcony and sit down. You can have these conversations. It's a teachable moment. Um, and that's really what I'm trying to do with the work um, 
whether I do uh, an exhibition and then there's an exhibition catalog, um, whether it's being involved with the street mural or just another example of my work that I got a chance to get the funding for for the result of the, uh, the Olympic Games, the community stage in a black community um, downtown Atlanta that acknowledges the black workers who came in to work for the railroad. It's called Mechanicsville. Um, they have a community reunion um, because there were um, homes there and actually even a series of housing projects have since been torn down. But you know, there are all these places and markers of where there's been a black, feet. yeah, there's been a black presence. I mean, you told me before that, that that's what I think about when I when I walk the land that Gaines walked, of course, too, and walk here. It's different for me than walking, say, New York or New Orleans. You know, exactly. The Cherokee and Creek who are through here, the enslaved, the whites who are through. I mean, there's all these intersections that we need to remember, and this is for another time too. But you've told me, of course, about James Brown in Tacoma. Right. I mean, Ida Cox in Tacoma too. Right. right? All of these people, and, and the interesting thing, even with those, specifically for James Brown, because people know James Brown, um, some of these stories don't fit easily into a linear format. Mm -hmm. That's the problem that I think we have with American history, is it's complicated. James Brown would not be interested, well, I'm not gonna speak for him, <laughs> but um, as I've understood, you know, it made more sense for James Brown to concentrate on, you know, Augusta as a black town. To talk about coming of age in his teens after being, you know, uh, incarcerated because, you know, he was struggling as, you know, an economically uh, disadvantaged young man in Northeast Georgia didn't fit well with the story of his life. But he became the James Brown that we know in Tacoa, Georgia, without a doubt. But unfortunately, even in the movie, there's no acknowledgement of that. But scholars know it um, because to acknowledge that would be to explain how there could be black people in North Georgia who could support and nurture him. And again, from the segregated balcony that a black community could see him perform on stage at the Ritz Theater. There's so much we could talk about. I know. <laughs> and we got to start wrapping up. But, okay. you know, today, which of course is is King's birthday, and then Monday, of course, is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. You know, we're going to see his words a lot, and King's words have become, at times, nothing more than sound bites used to argue that we are, after the civil rights movement and the election of Barack Obama, a, color, a colorblind or put in post-racial society. And King talks about that in, a, in a, um, a testament, I hope, a little bit. He's like, you can have these superficial things, but what we need is, he, he says it multiple times, we need structural changes in that essay. Um, they become almost a salve for whites. And every year on this day, you know, we see individuals quoting specifically the uplifting lines from the end of his I Have a Dream speech. And if you read that whole speech, there's a lot more in that speech. 
there, there's one part where he says, people ask me when we'll be satisfied. And he says, we won't be satisfied until there's an end to police brutality. There's also, I was, I was digging into my own hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana, um, Shreveport, Bossier area in Northwest Louisiana. And the newspaper articles that were printed before the march were calling it a lawless march, saying that, oh, this is propaganda. This is, this is gonna be unruly. This is going to be dangerous. This is going to be all this stuff. But this is the, the march for jobs and equality where King gives, of course, his I Have a Dream speech, where John Lewis speaks. And he gave them, and there's a plaque now there too, I saw it when I went to DC, of course, at the steps of Lincoln Memorial, on the steps, there's a plaque commemorating his speech, his 1963 speech on the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Sorry, I misspoke a second ago. However, of course, like I said, there's more that he said, you know, even in that speech. You know, what do you want us to remember about Dr. King today or about any of these individuals we talked about? What do you want us to take away and think about? First of all, um, that they were human beings. Um, because um, I posted something on the Afrolatchian Artist Project page just before we sat down to talk. Um, as I was on the back deck, Screamer Mountain behind me, um, and it was a photograph of him sitting with his um, children. Um, and just as a reminder that these were not the icons that we've made them to be, but they were ordinary flesh and bone. Mm -hmm. And so are we. And that we have a legacy a great legacy to tap into. Um, earlier this week, you know, um, I posted something um, about the fact that I'm getting all these calls from my friends about, you know, what we can do. Um, you know, my title is for my show is during the COVID area, but I could have even easily said, you know, notes of an Afrolatian daughter in the era of Black Lives Matter, and. So, you know, people are trying to connect with people that they know for advice, especially white friends with black people that they feel may have some perspective. And I said, you know, to add to what you read in your efforts to be an anti-racist, look for white mentors. That goes back to the comments that the gentleman said um, at the end of um, the gathering at Tougaloo um, is that people, you know, look for the Lillian Smiths, um, but they also try to ask questions about uh, the civil rights, anti-racist activists in their community that are white. I know that sounds strange coming from a black person, but that way you see it as a larger circle of people. And it's not just an effort to help black people as a missionary stance or as a humanitarian stance of helping the, and I'm doing the air quotes, the less fortunate. Um, I wanna, and that, that's, that's really what I wanna share. I wanna read the end real quick of um of king's a testament of hope which i said was published posthumously he wrote it in 68 and then we'll conclude he talks about 
and this is a long quote, but I think it's kind of important. Thus was born, particularly in the young generation, a spirit of dissent that ranged from superficial disavowal of the old values to total commitment to wholesale, drastic, and immediate social reform. Yet all of it was dissent. Their voice is still a minority, but united with millions of black protesting voices, it has become a sound of distant thunder increasing in volume with the gathering of storm clouds. This dissent is America's hope. Remember, he's writing this in 68, and of course he's writing after the Civil Rights Act passed, after the Voting Rights Act passed. And he talks about that too. He mentions kind of this colorblind idea that, oh, everything's good now, but it's not. It shines in the long tradition of American ideals that began with courageous Minutemen in New England, the continuing of the abolitionist movement that reemerged in the populist revolt, and decades later that burst forth to elect Franklin Roosevelt and John F. Kennedy. Today's dissenters tell the complacent majority that the time has come when further evasion of social responsibility in a turbulent world will court disaster and death. America has not yet changed because so many think it need not change, but this is the illusion of the damned. America must change because 23 million black citizens will no longer live supinely in a wretched past. They have left the valley of despair, they have found strength, strength and struggle, and whether they live or die, they shall never crawl nor retreat again. Joined by white allies, they will shake the prison walls until they fall. America must change. And then the final paragraph is this. A voice out of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago said that all men are equal. It said right would triumph. Jesus of Nazareth wrote no books. He owned no property to endow him with influence. He had no friends in the courts of the powerful. But he changed the course of mankind with only the poor and the despised. Naive and unsophisticated though we may be, the poor and despised of the 20th century will revolutionize this era. In our, and these are words that people used to describe King, the civil rights movement, and those who took part in it. They called them arrogant, lawless, and ingratitude. And he says, in our, quote, arrogance, lawlessness, and ingratitude, end quote, we will fight for human justice, brotherhood, secure peace and abundance for all, when we have won these in a spirit of unshakable nonviolence, then in luminous splendor, the Christian era will truly begin. That's a perfect way to wrap up this wonderful conversation. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot out of that speech that, that could be talked about. Um, thank you for joining me today. Make sure to go check out Afro-Latin Artist Project on Facebook. Like I said, her exhibit will be at Piedmont February 25th through March 25th. She will also, Marie will also take part in the Lillian Smith Social Justice Symposium, Arts and Social Justice Symposium on March 4th, which will be held virtually. So you can attend that. We will promote that later. But make sure to be on the lookout for that. And thank you again, Marie, for joining us. Onward. Our conversation covered a wide range of topics, but I forgot a very important one. In this moment, January 2021, to play on the metaphor of fruit and harvest, we have a harvest that I really truly believe that King and Smith would have been shocked by, pleased, you know, overjoyed to see come forward. Because we take the labor of their efforts fast forward to the 21st century civil rights movement and there are so many breakthroughs um, 
Obviously, we think about the first black president, uh, Barack Obama, in his two terms. But within this frame of time, there are so many firsts that we couldn't even name. Um, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, the first woman of any demographic, uh, first person of African descent, of Indian descent, in that role. But right here in Georgia, the world stage was set to watch the changes that are happening in the home state of Dr. Martin Luther King out of his home church, the church that forged him as a spiritual leader, as a social justice, uh, I guess, general (laughs) of many sorts, that out of that church would come the first U.S. Senator, Reverend Raphael Warnock, who was African-American, and joining him, the first Jewish U.S. Senator, uh, John Ossoff, also the youngest U.S. Senator at the age of 33. So as a Georgian, I am so proud to be able to witness what is transpiring when we talk about this metaphor of fruit and harvest and the work that is yet to come. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.